There was no water back there, so I got to drink soda. <laughs> um, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which the church, as you may or may not know, deems the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission that Christ gave us, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, and it's actually worded as you are going, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Um, any good missionaries got that memorized, right? Um, so that is the Great Commission. That is sort of our central purpose. That's the big thing that we as Christians are about. Turn with me to page 743 in your pew Bibles where we're going to read from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Page 743, Acts 1, 6 through 11, where Jesus reiterates this point basically in his last words to the disciples. And this comes on the heels of his crucifixion, right, his resurrection, his subsequent appearances to the disciples as being alive and uh, walking around and eating with them even. And today we read his very last words before his ascension. And it begins like this, and we're going to take a break right after this first verse. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, stopping there just for a moment, you can hear in this statement that the apostles expected the kingdom of God to be immediate, just to be established immediately. Probably, although Jesus had, I think, been clear all throughout his ministry, they had expected some sort of a political freedom from Rome, maybe an overthrow, whatever it was. It, it, would, have, it would have been very natural uh, after the temporary extinction of their hope by the crucifixion that this desire would have sort of been revived with a great force in them when they see Jesus alive after the crucifixion, right? But it seems like they don't fully understand the nature of the kingdom of God, that it is within them, that it's going to take time, that they're going to have to work at this, that it is going to take suffering to see it built in others and throughout the world, that Jesus chose them. He chose them, and he chose us right, to build his kingdom through our witness, which transcends governments and suffering and everything else. So he is not going to just, you know, blanket establish this thing right, right then. He's not going to pave the easy route for them. But he calls us to be participants in the building of the kingdom of God on this earth with all of its difficulties. And it's actually good for us that, that this happens. So in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has sent by his own author set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if we drew what Jesus had just said, it would look like concentric circles maybe going farther and farther out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and beyond, you know, to the ends of the earth. It's, it is multiplicative in the hearts of people extending to every people group on the globe, right? Like water droplets on a pond. But continuing in verse 9, he, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? They're all like catching flies, right? 
This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So he will return, like we studied in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, on that great and dreadful day of the Lord, when all mankind will be judged. And we remember that judged means to be justified in what they have chosen for life. Have they chosen Christ or have they turned away from Christ? When everyone gets what they actually desire, what they've chosen. But that's in the future, right? We can't read the future. We don't know when, when it'll come, when that'll happen. Outside of Matthew 24, 14, a very interesting verse which says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all, in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. So we know, we know what's got to happen before that. Nations in Scripture, as you've probably heard me say before, is translated from the Greek word ethne, meaning culturally, linguistically distinct people groups, not nations of political boundaries. So when he says nations, he's not talking about America. He's not talking about Pakistan. He's not talking about Indonesia. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he is saying, preach the gospel in all of these people groups to the goal of having a viable church being born in each one that is evangelizing its own people and beyond, out even beyond their cultural borders. Right now, Joshua Project, if you've ever gone to their website, you should, uh, it claims that there are about 17,427 people groups in the world. And that out of those 17,000, 7,415 have yet to be reached with the gospel. That just means that there is either no Christian witness among them at all, or there's very little Christian witness among them. There, there may not be enough that actually has a viable church, you know, uh, evangelizing its own people. And that is 42.5% of the world's people groups. 42.5%. Think about that in light of Matthew 24, 14. We support work in Lebanon as a church, which has a total of 26 people groups, out of which eight are unreached. Lebanon used to be 65% Christian. Now it's flip-flopped. It's 65% Muslim. In Syria, where we also support work, there is a total of 37 people groups, out of which 18 are unreached. In Afghanistan, where my three foster sons are from, there are 70 people groups, out of which 68 are unreached with the gospel. In Eritrea, where my one foster son is from, there are 17 people groups, nine of which are unreached. And surprisingly, in America, right here in the USA, there are 522 people groups, out of which 98 are unreached. So there's work to be done, right? We may not know the exact hour or date of Christ's coming, but in the meantime, the church is called to witness, right? Otherwise, it is really not the church. If we're involving ourselves in all a bunch of other junk, and we're never evangelizing, we're never witnessing, we are actually not being the church. Since the church is about what God's about, right? And this is what God's about, <laughs> Right? having a remnant of all people groups in his kingdom at the end of days worshiping before his throne. Some of us have gotten a specific calling to witness to people groups outside of our own culture, our own country, 
overseas. Kim and I did that in Indonesia for nine years or so. Some are of us and many of us are called right where we are. But the truth of the matter is wherever you find your, yourself, you may be the only Bible that somebody reads. You may be the only testimony that they ever hear about Christ. That's the mission field where God has called you to serve. It's right where you are. And we know that even in our own churches, there are people that know, don't know Christ, Right? So if we took the time to draw a map of all of our efforts in sharing Christ in our various contexts, there would be a growing number of separate little points of concentric circles going out all across the globe like raindrops on a placid lake, right? Because each person who comes to Christ should take on this vision of sharing the gospel. I heard this speaker this morning say that, I, I, I forget, he said something like 75% of quote-unquote born-again evangelical Christians do not believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I, I think his wording's a little wrong. They're not born again. They're not Christians. If they don't believe that, that's, that's the one, one of the central things that we believe about Christ. Proverbs 29.18 says, where there is no prophetic vision... The people cast off restraint. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. In other words, when we're not given a clear vision, a meaningful vision, uh, we flounder and we, we actually become destructive. Think about America right now. When you throw God out the, out the window, you just preoccupy yourselves with the craziest of things, and we're getting crazier. The proverbial image is of a people whose restraints have been removed, and now they are going mad with their own freedom. Their own desires take over. So words like vision and you know, purpose and mission are extremely important to the human heart and the human psyche, right? They are words which enable people to endure under the worst of circumstances. When the Nazis made Jews move sand back and forth from one side of the compound to the other repeatedly, they were trying to make them feel purposeless in those camps. But the Jew, having been embedded with this idea that they were the people of God, that there was something beyond this camp, beyond the razor wire and all that kind of stuff, gave them purpose beyond that moment to survive, and many of them even thrived after the war. A church without a vision can flounder in the same way. A church must have a clear vision of who they are in Christ and what they are called to do by Christ. Remember, God's Word is revelation coming to us from the outside of ourselves. We didn't make it up ourselves. I didn't sit there and you know, come up with all this stuff and say, well, I want to pursue you, God. No, God woke me up from the dead. It comes with clear direction which not only brings salvation to our souls, but direction in the kingdom-building task that God has set before us. So fortunately, Jesus has not left us without a mission, right? At the start of the history of the church, Jesus has gathered his disciples together, and he's about to ascend to heaven, right? And before leaving, Jesus gives this command to be his witnesses to all people, starting right where they are and then going out. And this is still always the command and, the, and God's vision for the church today until Christ returns. 
It's the reason that we are doing this evangelism training tonight, which I really hope you can come and, and get equipped. Very simple, very easy, and very non-threatening, you know, in, in a way to do it. It's the reason that we are doing Alpha in January, for people to come and to hear the gospel in a comfortable environment. It is a great course. Plan on attending both of those things if you can. And, and inviting people to Alpha. Be praying for those people that God would often, like, open and soften their hearts uh, to, be, to receive that invitation well. Let the, let, pray that God upsets their world, ruins their world. That everything they've trusted in it just goes to the wayside. And they have to look for something in this life to give them purpose and meaning. Right? These are only two tools. There are only two tools. There are other tools out there, but you can start with these, right? The Holy Spirit will use them if you use them, but they're absolutely useless if they stay in the toolbox. Many Christians, we often shy away from our calling and we preoccupy ourselves with a a bunch of wrong things. Even good things become errant when when they're misused. It's like the wife's honey-do list, right? I'm glad my wife just left (laughs) because she's got one, right? Filled with things like hang that picture that's been sitting on the floor for two years, fix the step that's been broken for since 2012. But her husband has a toolbox collecting dust, dust in the basement, right? And he's too preoccupied with football and things like that to get the tools out and start fixing things. But hammers can't swing themselves. They have to be swung with somebody that has a little bit of know-how. So let me ask you, what does witness mean for you when you think about your relationship with Jesus? What does it mean? And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I want to ask these questions. Are you indifferent? Do you, do you just not, never think about it? You don't really care? Or do you think that just being a nice person reveals Christ to people? Or do you only say to people, God loves you, but you never get into the conversation and clearly articulate that we are all sinful beings in need of repentance before a holy God? We would have to say these things. I sent somebody a video this week, and I've I've showed it here before, of Penn Jillette, who says, you know, Penn and Teller, and Penn Jillette is a a vowed atheist and he, he's like, I just don't trust any Christian that won't witness to me. Because if you think you have the, the, the answer to life, that, that I'm not going to get into heaven, and you don't share that with me, you've got to hate me, right? And he shares the story about a man who loved him enough to share Christ with him and give him a Bible and all this stuff. It's a great, uh, great little video. Um, have you ever, ever once in your life, shared your faith verbally with people? Have you ever once clearly articulated the gospel to people? Do you know how to? Most Christians don't know how to, right? And here's the last question. This is probably the most important. When you stand before Christ at that end of days that he talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, what will your life's work communicate to him? What If, if he looked at your body of, body of work throughout your life, would it communicate that his kingdom is the most important thing to you or your kingdom? We have to face these questions, right? The Greek word for uh, witness is martis, 
which, by the way, anybody can figure out, it's where we get the word, word martyr for in, in English, which instantly tells us something about the initial witnesses of Jesus, that they were so smitten, so taken by this message, so committed to telling others about him that they didn't give a second thought to the preservation of their own lives. They didn't get anything but suffering for this. But sadly, many are preoccupied with their own plans of life, taking lightly our sin and not pursuing holiness and purity Hebrews chapter 12, 3 and 4 tells us, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, talking about Christ, so that you will not grow weary and tired, or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, like Christ did. Revelations 2.10 states, Do not be afraid of, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer Persecution for 10 days. I wonder what that's referencing, the 10 days. I'm going to look that up later. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Before giving this command, Jesus makes a promise that they will receive power to do it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The power of God's Holy Spirit will come upon them and dwell inside them, turning vessels of clay into something that is very precious and also very powerful. Ideas change people. We don't witness alone. We witness about God, with God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have God's Spirit dwelling within you. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. That's what Scripture teaches. So if you think, I'm not comfortable sharing my faith and telling anybody about Jesus, be assured you can do it. Not because you are so smart and so brave, but because you have God's Spirit inside you to help you and to guide you in those conversations. The fear of making mistakes sometimes paralyzes us. We don't need that fear. And it's not from the Lord. Remember what Matthew chapter 10 tells us. Really good. Think about this verse. Memorize this verse and it'll help you a lot. He says, do not worry about what, you're, what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. It comes from outside of you. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Amen. Because I'm a mess. <laughs> right? This is not about Jason. This is not about Bill. This is not about Heather. This is not about us. This is about the kingdom of God. This is about Jesus. Jesus wanted that good news of the gospel to spread from Jerusalem outward. The message was to transcend cultures moving up to Samaria and and out to the ends of the earth. And for several hundred years, God had been preparing the way for the message to spread quickly using both Greeks and Romans. The Greeks were all about education and culture. They had set up universities and learning centers from Egypt to Italy. The result was a common language among all these differing nations, right? And it's like English today. That's like the world's language, right? The New Testament would be written in Greek, and the message could spread rapidly, and it did. Rome was all about military advancement. 
looking to control by force. So to manage armies, you need an infrastructure. You need roads and bridges and things like that. And God used those roads to create a safe and rapid travel for all these first century missionaries. There was only one problem. (laughs) The Christians loved Jerusalem so much. They loved the comfort of their own fellowship with their own friends so much that they weren't interested in leaving town or being uncomfortable in these conversations and indifference set in. We started arguing about stupid things, right? And they say if you don't have Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you get Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Following the stoning of Stephen, we read there, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So he left the apostles there to sort of manage and continue to push things out. But it was the uncomfortable truth of persecution that would drive those early Christians from Jerusalem. They would, they would take that message with them as they were persecuted and driven out, spread out across the entire world. So God uses persecution, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, to accomplish the witness of his gospel, Acts 1, 8. But in talking about all this, you have to understand that Jesus' command didn't originate with him. It didn't originate with him. The introduction of the Bible is is from Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, which begins the creation account, right? We all know that. Adam and Eve, the fall, things like that. Mm, It's better than water. And then we have the story of the Bible, right? The plot of the Bible. It begins in Genesis 12, and it runs all the way through to the conclusion in uh, Revelations chapter 5, which ends the story of the Bible. And then we have this closing, right? And the basics to the introduction are God creates mankind, mankind falls into sin, God deals with sin, mankind grows and multiplies until finally we get to the point where in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 it says this, listen to this strong indictment, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We are the salt and light of the earth. We keep this at bay as we witness. But that doesn't seem to be happening in America right now or in the world. Now this comes just before and is the reason for the flood, which I believe wholeheartedly in the flood. God, being holy, can't be in fellowship with sinful creatures. Sin and holiness, like we've said before, are like like oil and water. They cannot mix. In his desire to be in relationship with us, God had to deal with sin. He had to. And we see this in the flood where Noah and his family are in the ark for 40 days of rain. And a year later, they run aground and God gives them this rainbow. And he says, you know, Noah, I'm never going to do that on the face of the earth again. So we will never be flooded around the whole earth again. And mankind then begins to grow and to multiply again. And in Genesis chapter 11, God creates the nations. The people groups at the Tower of Babel by scattering them with all their various language, which ends the introduction of the Bible. And it was actually a very 
compassionate act of God because they were already on the road to what they were, were before. So he slowed that down. He slowed that down by scattering them and confusing their languages, right? And God loves each of these different people groups equally. We know that. He could have spoken his good news to each of them in their own language. He could have just done that. He's God. He couldn't make it happen. But instead, he chose to use people to reach people, perhaps to train us in the process of becoming more like himself. There's something about this process that teaches us and strengthens us and changes us. And as you know, he picked one man, Abram, who later is called Abraham. And he said, Abram, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be your God and you're, you're going to be my people. And the reason I'm going to bless you, Abraham, isn't so that you can just say, praise God, I'm blessed. That's only half of it. I also want you to be a blessing to all the peoples that I created at the Tower of Babel. I want to bless you in order for you to be a blessing to all the nations on earth. And that promise is found in Genesis chapter 12. This is a a vital passage for us as Christians. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth shall be blessed through you. And that promise or that covenant, that Abrahamic covenant promise God gives to Abraham falls into two basic top line and bottom line components. The top, of the, top line of that covenant is that God desires to bless his people. It's who he is. It's how he reveals his character. It's how he reveals his glory. And, and by the way, he just loves us and he wants to, right? But never are his blessings solely just for us. God desires us to emulate Him in blessing others, to pour out what we have already received from Him. So we're not a bucket, you know, collecting and never, never pouring it out. We're, we're, we're more like a piped vessel being filled and, <coughs> and passing along this blessing to everybody else. God already knows who He wants to bless through your ministry. You all have a ministry, not just a pastor. Blessing coming in, blessing going out. That's how it should be working. Which is the bottom line responsibility that we have, and that is to bless others. Not just those that are like us, but all peoples of the world. Those who may live in different areas of our cities or even the world. But how do we know this, right? Well, God said peoples, right, would be blessed through Abraham. The term's already plural, people, right? And as that S is added, we're asked to review all the peoples of the world divided up into their various tribes and tongues and ethnic groups. For example, Pakistan is one nation politically, but in God's eyes, it's, it's made up of many different people or ethnic groups or the nations, right, who have different languages, different customs, foods, and maybe even different gods. Some of those are the Beel or the Sindhi or the Balush or the Pushtun or the Sheena or the Shitrali or the, the Balti or the Punjabi or the Kashmiri peoples. And if the gospel breaks out among the Punjabi, for, for instance, would they naturally turn around and share that blessing of knowing the one true God, knowing Jesus with the other groups around them? No, they won't. Because people naturally steer away from people that are different from themselves. Knowing this, 
God put in that one simple word which changed everything for Abraham. He said, all peoples, right? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis chapter 12 is actually the Great Commission. It's the foundational theme that runs all throughout God's Word. God God is working towards that goal of redeeming people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Not every person in those people groups will, will be saved, but a remnant of every one of them will. Christians usually attribute the Great Commission as having been given by Jesus, right? But he was just reiterating the great call of old to all, all, all of his people. He, he didn't initiate the idea of reaching all nations. Missions didn't begin with Jesus at that moment, right? It began with Abraham after the Tower of Babel. Jesus simply reiterated what God had already promised to Abraham when God said all peoples would be blessed through him. Jesus reiterated that we should go to all peoples, building on God's promise to Abraham by using the words all nations. Now let's not miss this this bigger picture of what God is doing. He wants to use people, including us, to reach the nations for his glory, and and he chose us to do this. He created you for this reason. It's our primary purpose, all of our primary purposes. God's blessed us to be a blessing to all nations. The concept of of God blessing all nations through, through, uh, through us fills the Old Testament. You can't get away from it. God is a global God, and we have a role in His plan. So let's look at a few Old Testament passages. Don't just believe what I just said. Let's look at a few passages, and let's notice this Great Commission language in these passages. Notice the references uh, to a global application in 1 Chronicles. He says, Sing to the Lord all the, all the earth. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His, His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. God is a global God. He is passionate about receiving worship from all peoples. Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness. And if you're doing the sonship course with us, you, you have a better understanding of what righteousness means right now. Lord will make, the righteous, make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Jeremiah 3.17, at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Won't that be a wonderful day? I imagine that day. Just all the different people groups and all their cool colors and you know, the, their, their clothing and languages just praising the Lord. That is going to be a cool day. Daniel 7.14, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, my name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, right? Says the Lord Almighty. So the Old Testament is absolutely chocked full of God's heart to reach all nations, all peoples. 
Now, if we go to the New Testament, we have to ask, did Jesus understand the Abrahamic covenant to be the, the, the uh, foundational starting point for mission or the gospel, right? Or did he just say to his disciples, ah, the Old Testament's outdated, you know, I'm going to give you a new revelation. This is all brand new. Is that what he said? In other words, did he fully understand the Abrahamic covenant as being the foundational starting point for the story of the Bible? And it's, you know, remember the Bible is 66 books, but it is one story. Right? Well, the answer to this is found in Luke chapter 24, verse 45. But to best understand it, you have to understand context, right? He's almost completed his life here on earth. He's, he's suffered, he's died, he's risen from the dead, and now he's with his disciples, and we find Jesus in teaching mode, and he's reviewing the scriptures with his disciples, right? And it says this, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Do you know that you need God to open your, your mind to understand the scriptures? You won't fully understand them until he does. So Jesus is sitting here meeting with his disciples just before he ascends into heaven and to give them their marching orders, their their task, right? His last command, our first concern. Saying the most important thing. You know, when I go away and I leave somebody to watch my house, I tell them the most important things and then I go away. I don't tell them a bunch of other garbage because they'll forget it all. I just tell them the most important thing. That's what Jesus did. And how many themes do you think that he wanted to share with them? What did he want to convey to them? Well, we would sit there and we would think, well, there's a lot like sanctification and justification and grace and mercy and holiness, maybe 15 to 20 major themes. We'd overload those guys, right? But he didn't. He only gave two. He only gave two. This is what he said. He, He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are, my, you are witnesses of these things. So the first theme, theme is that Christ, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, which means forgiveness of sins and freedom from the penalty of death and a relationship that we can now have with God, that Christ's righteousness is laid upon us and as God looks on us, he sees that, and we are, we are golden, right? It refers to the top-line blessing of the covenant. The second, repentance and forgiveness of sins, will be preached in his name to all nations, begin, beginning at Jerusalem, referring to the bottom line of the covenant, that our blessing of others, that's, that's what that's about. Jesus broke the entirety of Scripture down, sorry, down into top-line and bottom-line these two components. There was an expert in the law, Matthew 22, who said to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He seemed to expect one answer, but Jesus gave him two. The first, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and mind and strength, referring to the relational blessing of the top line of the covenant. And then the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, That refers to the bottom line, obviously. And we are blessed by God, right? I'm sitting here blessed by God. I'm, I'm assured in Christ and all that kind of good stuff. Don't I want the same thing for my neighbor? Penn Jillette is right. He is right. It's hateful for me not to share Jesus. I don't just want my neighbor well fed 
and, and to have justice in their life and all that stuff. The greater thing I want for them is salvation in Christ. I want them to know God and be assured of their place with Him. I want their sins forgiven. I want, I want to see them in heaven someday. If you look at the Ten Commandments, verse 4 deals with, uh, deal with your relationship with God, referring to the top line of the covenant. We just studied this in, in, our, uh, in our series not too long ago. The next six deal with our relationships with each other, referring to the bottom line. Top line, bottom line, running all the enti- entirely through the Scriptures, like railroad tracks, right? Allowing us to read God's Word, all the 66 books put together as one story. Right, And so when Jesus was opening their eyes to the Scriptures, to what Scriptures was He referring? Because we know the New Testament wasn't written yet, right? He referred to and He taught missions or the Gospel to His disciples from the Old Testament, proving two things. First, that He would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, which had already occurred by the moment He was speaking to them. And second, that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in His name to all nations. Jesus was preaching the Great Commission from the Old Testament. It was an old, old idea. The Gospel was already 2,000 years old by that point, and it's now more than 4,000 years old today. God's desire to reach all nations has been there from the very beginning. It's at the very heart of God, and He wants to use us to accomplish it. So let's peek at the very end of the book, the end of the Bible, in Revelation 5, verse 9. This is the conclusion. And it says, And they sang a new song. These are the elders singing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, talking about Jesus, because you were slain, And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Amen. God made a promise in Genesis 12 to use people like us to reach all the ethnic groups of the world, all the nations. And he fulfills that promise in Revelations 5.9. Everything in between that is the story of mission. It's the story of the gospel. What God set out to do in the beginning of the Bible, using us, God pulls off in the end of time through us, through our witness. This tells us that God intends to use people like us, like you and me, to reach the nations. And each time that we go to the Scriptures, we should be seeing God's heart for the greater world around us and the big picture of how God wants to ultimately use our lives in the lives of others. Maybe you didn't understand or know God's plan was to impact nations through you, right? But that's why we have to discover how God wants to use us, why we have to equip ourselves too. But equipping, you'll you'll never be equipped enough, but we have the Holy Spirit that speaks through us, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it all starts right here in our Jerusalem, right where you work or where you live your friendships, your co-workers, people like that. And through that, it will extend across the world. Wouldn't you like to get to heaven someday and have some Pakistani or some Afghan person who, you know, at the end of days, sit there and say to you, it's because you shared the gospel with your co-worker that I am here in the kingdom of God right now. Due to that ripple effect, 
of the gospel chain across the world. Well, that can and will happen if you and I are obedient to our calling. So I urge you, come to the, the evangelism class tonight. And if you can't make it tonight, I'll sit with you uh, separately and do it, right? Be, be praying for those people that you're going to invite to Alpha and plan on coming with them so that they feel comfortable, that they have somebody to share it with, and we can see people actually come to Christ. Because if we are not evangelizing, we are not the church. We are not the church. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you are present and you are you loved us enough to give us this purpose, this, this great commission to walk in. So we ask that we would be responsible with it. We ask that we would walk in it and, and endure the suffering that it might bring or the uncomfortable feelings it might bring. Let us share who you are with others. Let us enjoy the blessings we have in you, but let us pour them back out to others. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you.